So we had big plans to do that this morning for me, uh, but for some reason we didn't feel like it would be the same effect, and I didn't want to have to clean up the confetti afterwards or, or, or anything like that. Man, how intentionally obnoxious is that, that kind of entrance? You, you know that if somebody gets that kind of introduction, it better be something good, right? I mean, you know, there better be something pretty amazing happening. Uh, how many of you knew that this week was uh, opening uh, for baseball? Uh, this past week, opening day happened, and I have some baseball fans in here, that, that's great. Well, you know, like, if you ever go to a Major League Baseball game and you're there before uh, uh, somebody who's coming up to bat gets up, they have their walk-up song. Have you, you guys know what I'm talking about, where they've got this really intense song, coming, you know, as they, I don't know, maybe I should have a walk-up song, you know, like when I... <laughs> And maybe that wouldn't be quite as cool if we did that. Or, or you just know, like, there's some introductions that are going to bring along something pretty exciting. Do you remember the, anybody know the, the uh, 90s Chicago Bulls intro? Like, can you hear it in your head and see the stadium and all the things that are coming? Or, you know, you just start to hear the Mission Impossible theme or, so, or so, something like that. I don't know. The Masters are coming up. Any golf fans? No, okay, that's all right, two of us, that, that's all right, but we are going to be April, you know, and at the beginning of April, we're going to be listening for Jim Nance's dulcet tones as he introduces and welcomes you to Augusta, and it's going to be, going to be amazing. I, let, let's be honest, if I had an introduction like that, it would be pretty disappointing. I mean, there's not, there's not this amazing expectation that some huge celebrity is going to come up, this amazing thing is, is going to happen. That wouldn't be expected for somebody like me. But for somebody like Will Smith, okay, maybe that's not too, too over the top. Well, this morning as we kick off and start this series called Hope is Rising, we're going to be looking at the final week of Jesus' life before his death, burial, and resurrection. And the way in which this week was kicked off was a huge, massive introduction for Jesus just like this. It's called the triumphal entry, and we're going to be looking at that in Mark chapter 11. And here's the thing about this, and if you want to turn to there in your Bibles this morning, that, that you can. Um, this, is, this is really an interesting event in Jesus' life. Because up to this point, it seems like all of the recognition that Jesus coming down as the Son of God, and as he's coming as Lord and Savior, he's finally getting all the recognition that he deserves. All of the honor that he was supposed to get, finally he's being recognized for. The people, crowds are gathering, they're giving him all the acknowledgement for all the things that he ought to be, except they actually weren't. They, they actually didn't understand what Jesus was coming to do, and they were celebrating what they didn't understand. They were celebrating what they expected him to accomplish for them, but what Jesus never intended to do. And here's what's interesting about the story and why it's such a big deal and why all four Gospels tell the story about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Because it teaches us this. That sometimes how we hope God is going to show up is not how we need him to show up in our lives. And sometimes the things that we hope in really just lead to disappointment when what we need is for them to change our lives. And so here's the difference. The acknowledgement of that is the difference between our expectation of goodness and our hope in God, and then it's always rising, no matter what kind of darkness we might find ourselves in, versus the disappointment when things don't turn out the way that we wanted. 
And so while you're turning to, or maybe you're at Mark chapter 11, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of background of the, of the gospel of Mark and how Mark wrote this. It's really fascinating. It's only 16 chapters long, and Mark f- spends the first 10 chapters on three years of Jesus' life. I mean, he packs a lot uh, in into a very small amount of space. And so some people call Mark the gospel of action because the first two-thirds cover m- most of Jesus' life. But as soon as you get to chapter 11 through 16, Mark slams on those brakes and just spends those six chapters on Jesus' last week of his life. Uh, things have been building up for Jesus, especially for the last several months of his life. His teaching and his miracles had not only granted a massive popularity with the people, uh, but had drawn significant attention from religious leadership who felt threatened by Jesus' ministry. They thought he was going to take away all of their power and position. And so in these final six chapters of Mark, we get to zoom in and see exactly what Jesus is doing and accomplishing in his final week before his death, burial, and resurrection that shows us why we have hope in who he is and what he came to do. And so here's the first thing that we're going to look at in this week. It's called the triumphal entry. Uh, Some of us might recognize this as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And this is what happens, and this is what Mark records for us. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you stealing my donkey? No, all right. That's that's what they asked. And so they answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is happening. Bethany is about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is there. People are filing into Jerusalem for the Passover. This is Passover week. And so tens of thousands of Jews who live outside of Jerusalem are traveling here to make sacrifice to celebrate in the Passover meal. And so as Jesus is coming, this is not just a small group of his disciples hanging out here and there's a couple of palm branches and and coats on the road. These are thousands of people who have amassed, who are shouting, who everybody in the region would know this is going on. This is a huge, massive, huge, massive event. Um, And so, you know, it may seem kind of strange that a week from now, Jesus is about to be crucified. I mean, just, just a few days later, this same crowd who is yelling, Hosanna, we're so excited, here comes Jesus, this is going to be amazing. This is the same crowd who ends up getting turned around and yelling, crucify him when they're talking to Jesus. And you wonder, like, how in the world do you get from here, here to there? Jesus has become incredibly popular with the people. He's healed hundreds of people in the region. He's raised somebody from the dead, his friend Lazarus. This is just a few days ago. He's raised him from the dead. That gets some notoriety. And Jesus has sent out his disciples. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 of his disciples to different areas in the region to prepare them for his teaching and what's going on. So people are very familiar with who Jesus is. They know what he's about. They know what he's been teaching, and they're ready to call him Lord. 
So this is why there are these large crowds of people celebrating Jesus. The cult thing, that's kind of an aside. That's pretty interesting. And this is one of those things where there's something prophesied about the Messiah hundreds of years before in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And so, uh, this same, for example, the same story is told in the book of Matthew by one of Jesus' other biographers. And Matthew connects this very directly to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where this is prophesied about the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so for generations, Jewish teachers had looked at this and seen this as a messianic prophecy. So when Jesus is coming and Jesus is on a donkey, and not just any donkey, he's on that donkey from Zechariah chapter 9, well, there's, always, there's, there's this huge amount of buzz of Jesus coming. He's the Messiah. He's going to do the thing that he came to do to save the people. He's going to change everything. And so the hope that the people had in Jesus was massive. They were ready for revolution in their lives at this point, but the hope they had was misplaced. They misunderstood the role of Messiah because when people imagined their Messiah coming, they weren't expecting what Jesus was coming to do. They were expecting a conquering king. The timing would have been perfect at this point. In fact, there were other people who had already started in history uprisings for the Jewish people to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were overtaxed, they were underrepresented, they were abused, and people were ready for revolution. This was the perfect political climate for their Messiah, their conquering king, their military general to show up and help them to overthrow the government. This week was the Passover, their biggest national festival, so there's more people here than ever. And so you do the political math, the people are ready for revolution, they're convinced that Jesus is their warrior king coming to set them free, so it's go time. And so you read about this celebration and you think, oh, people are finally giving Jesus the recognition that, they're due, that he's due. And in reality, they've completely misunderstood why they're coming. As they see Jesus riding this colt and they're waving these palm branches and, these, and they're laying down their coats and stuff, this imagery is that they're, they're crowning him. You know, it's, it's like a coronation where this is a political and regal gesture for him. And so this is their expectation of what Jesus is coming to do. They're excited about Jesus on a donkey, but they're about to be very disappointed because Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom and to overthrow Roman rule. He came for a much different reason. Uh, this is actually the second time that they've tried to and wanted to make Jesus their king. After Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 15, they were excited. They thought, man, this Jesus can do anything. He can feed us. He can overthrow the government. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That, that's like, that was their reaction to what Jesus had done in their life. This was their expectation. And so it's easy to read the story and think, where did all these people get the idea that Jesus came for the reason they think he came, they came, he came for? Why were they hoping the wrong thing? Uh, but, but in reality, I think, I think we do the same thing too. And I think this is why the story is here. Mark Moore uh, a, a theologian and scholar points out this, Jesus is the Messiah predicted by the prophets, but not the Messiah expected by the people. And so often I think we put ourselves and we end up in kind of the same scenario where we're hoping that God is going to do something very specific in our lives that isn't actually going to produce the lasting hope that we need from him. 
We get ourselves worked up and excited and find hope in things that can't deliver. And so we seek to maybe build our own kingdom or establish ourselves, our own territory. We want to overthrow those that abuse us, maybe. And we believe that if we could do all those things, our life would be perfect. But here's the thing, and here's the difference. The difference in that kind of hope and the hope that Jesus came to bring is that the hope that Jesus brings isn't about a temporary battle for a momentary peace. Because you and I know that as we've lived our lives that there's, there's always another battle. Whatever obstacle that we face, whatever thing threatens to steal our hope, there's always, even when we get through that, there's always something else that comes along because we live in a sin-broken world. And we know that no matter how much we might build up our personal kingdom, even if we keep it for as long as we possibly can, it's not anything that we can take with us or ultimately fulfills us. In your life, you know, my life, you think about all the different things that you've hoped in, you've placed your hope in. People is a big one. It is for me. There are a lot of times I've placed my hope in people, and, and what happens? Eventually, something's going to happen. Even with the best relationship, the best person that you can think of, at some point, they're going to let you down. At some point, I've let people down. You put your hope in circumstances. I mean, if only this thing could happen, if A plus B equals C, you know, then this would make everything different. And maybe that has happened, and it still hasn't worked. Or things, if I only had this thing, it would make everything different in my life, but, but things break, right? And they don't always stick around. Eventually, all those things tend to disappoint us. We think we know what it's going to take to give us a lasting hope, but it never quite ends up being that thing. And so Jesus doesn't put himself where everyone expected him to be based on what they were hoping in, but Jesus put him, puts himself in a position to give us the kind of hope that isn't contingent upon other people or other places or other things. Because we don't just need momentary reprieves through each battle we face. We need the war to be won. And so Jesus' actions, instead of becoming a military king for the people, he speaks directly to the deepest needs of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And while everyone was looking at him to defeat an earthly enemy, in this case, overthrow the Roman Empire, Jesus defeated what actually steals our hope. He defeats sin and death. And that's the thing that gives us courage to know and peace to recognize that hope is always rising when we put our faith in him. Though he wasn't the warrior general king to lead the rebellion against Rome, he stands on the front lines of the battle for our soul. And he's already won the war. That's the story to come. And he's standing at the ready to fight for you and for me as the king of heaven. And the hope that Jesus is meant to usher in in our lives, it doesn't disappoint because it's eternally sustained. It's a hope that's not contingent about us or someone else or our circumstances. It can't be taken from you and it can't be taken from me if we don't allow it. Because it's not, it's not based on anything else other than him. Because Jesus came to become, become an eternal king in our lives, not simply an earthly one. This, uh, this past week, um, I got the sickest I've been in a decade. And it was that memorable uh, because I remember what it was like to get sick the last time I got as sick as I did this past week. And it was, uh, I'm still don't feel quite 100% uh, all, all the way, and I was really sore, and my rib cage hurt, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to give you all the details, but just trust me when I say I was pretty sick, and Renee stayed home from work, and it wasn't the man flu, you know, like I didn't have a, a hangnail or, or something like that. 
And you better believe, you better believe I was praying, dear God, please let this be the last time, you know, each time that I got, got sick. And I don't say that in jest, like I was praying, I would love, I would love to be healed and not deal with this anymore. And I was hoping, I was hoping that that was going to be the case. And you know what? Um, like I was not immediately healed. <laughs> and, and that hope, you know, you might look at that and think, well, you kind of expand that and maybe this, you know, 24 hour, you know, stomach bug that, that you had, and maybe that's not really a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But you think about that in, in some uh, bigger terms experiences, maybe that you've had in your life that you've seen your family go through where you think, man, God, Man, if you just heal this, if you could just take this, this from me, then, then maybe finally, you know, I would have the hope that, that I need uh, through you and in you to kind of make it through in this world. And you think about, you know, sometimes when that doesn't happen, it's like, where, where does that kind of hope come from? We think about Jesus' life, too, and his ministry and how many people that Jesus healed and how amazing that was, but how many people that didn't get healed by Jesus? And you think about, well, what about, what about them and what about the hope that Jesus came came to give? Why didn't he heal all of those people? Maybe because the hope that Jesus came to give is so much bigger than that and broader than that. That, that it's not contingent necessarily about, uh, upon our, our comfort, this, this side of heaven, but, it, but it's an expectation that God is going to, regardless of what happens to us, good is always going to win out in the end. And maybe that's the thing that Jesus was coming to fight for and, and to give to us. And that that's the reason that even after Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended, even people who had not been healed from him still turned and repented and changed their lives and followed him regardless of what was happening to them physically. That there's something there that Jesus came to give. That's not just contingent about the, upon the circumstance that, that we find ourselves. Or maybe you think about a few hundred years after Jesus' resurrection that uh, Christianity was fairly popular and that from a socio-political standpoint, it was advantageous to be a Christian, that there was status involved there that you, you can enjoy and that kind of thing because it was culturally acceptable at that point. But that's not how Christianity started out. Hope was not found in socio-political status or standing. In fact, it was very opposite as a Christian. You were in the lowest and, and, and one of the most highly marginalized places you could be if you chose to be, become a Christian. And so people weren't choosing that, weren't choosing to follow Jesus based on the hope that he was giving them on how they might experience life socially and politically. That wasn't the hope that he came to give, but something much bigger, much deeper, much richer than that. And even following Jesus and applying his philosophy and his teaching in life, you know, just saying, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live life the way that Jesus did and just kind of see uh, how that changes my expectation and my experience of how life might be. That is going to give you a more purposeful life, but it's still not going to explain and express and help you to experience the deeper, richer hope that Jesus, the hope that does not disappoint regardless of how our purpose might feel or how we might experience that in this life. It still doesn't help us see that or experience that in our life. Just as the people who at once were crying Hosanna and then were crying crucify him, they weren't thinking in that moment, oh yeah, all the teaching is a Sermon of the Mount. Yeah, they matter. No, they were thinking they didn't matter at all because Jesus didn't come to do what they had expected him to do in their lives. Jesus didn't come to be an earthly king. He came to be an eternal one. 
And that's the thing that changes everything for what we get to put our hope in. That's what gives us a reason to have a hope that does not disappoint in our lives. It's because Jesus came to save us from our sin. And that's the one obstacle that will always continue to disappoint us in our life. is the brokenness that we experience from sin. And our own doubts, and our own fears, and our darkness and lack of hope. None of that can touch what Jesus does on the cross. In Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Um, I, I just want to recommend that, I mean, this whole chapter is amazing. Romans chapter 5 is something worth highlighting in your Bible and marking for you, but it particularly when you think about this series, as we look at this last week, uh, last week of Jesus' life before his, his resurrection, um, I, I just want you to hear these words that, that Paul used to describe this hope that we have. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, uh, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope as, as Paul uses it here, is an expectation of good. And that how we view our lives, we're, no matter what's happening to us, we're expecting God is going to bring good out of this. And this is promised to us. And if you and I find ourselves regularly disappointed in life, here, here's the thing. It, it might be because we're placing our hope in the wrong things, in the wrong people, in the wrong places. And maybe we've come to realize that hope placed in the wrong things is no hope at all. See, it's, it, it's interesting that, that the people are, are, are praising Jesus as coming out with, with, with complete misunderstanding. They're, they're using this word, uh, Hosanna, and Hosanna is an expression that literally means help or save, I pray. And depending on where you are when it comes to hope and what you're hoping in, in, in life, that could sound like it's coming from a place of despair. Help, I pray, or save, I pray, depending on where you are in your life right now, that, that could be like, God, I got nothing. Like, I, I'm in complete despair. I have no hope. You got to do something for me, for me here. But the reason that they were using this term is because when hope is placed, and even though they didn't know that Jesus is the hope that they needed and they were using it the wrong way, is that, is that when we do place our hope in the right thing, when we say help or save, I pray, we're simply acknowledging what's already been promised to us. And that's why it is celebratory in that manner. And so from our perspective as Christ followers, because what Jesus has done for us through the cross and the empty tomb is that we do get to say Hosanna full of hope and not from a place of despair. It's a celebratory phrase that we use to glorify God in confidence that Jesus is the answer to exchanging a life of misplaced hope to one that is anchored to a confident hope that can never be defeated or never be disappointed. And so over the next four weeks, as we look at this last week of Jesus before his resurrection, as we lead up to Easter and Resurrection Sunday, so much of understanding that hope is always rising is knowing that if we're feeling disappointment 
It's because our perspective is in the wrong place, not because Jesus is in the wrong place. That we're trying to accomplish the wrong thing, not that Jesus was trying to accomplish the wrong thing. And that God invites us through Jesus to reorient ourselves around faith, hope, and love so that we can see Jesus as our eternal hope, just as we're meant to, by celebrating an empty grave just beyond a used cross that reminds us of what we're meant to hope in. And so I just want to call us to contemplate that type of hope, the hope that Jesus calls us to, the eternal kind, the kind that never disappoints, uh, as we come to a time just like we ever do every week as we do and spend some time in communion where we recognize and remember exactly what Jesus set out to do. Let me pray for us as we do that this morning. God, um, I get, and there are moments in my life where I lose sight of the hope that you came to provide for us. And God, moments like this, moments like worshiping together, moments like taking communion together are are meant to remind us and reorient us uh, of the reconciliation between us and God that you give us. Uh, The fact that we we may have separated ourselves from you, but but Jesus redeems us from you, that um, nothing... Nothing external um, can separate us from you. That you poured out your Holy Spirit in our hearts to give us and to remind us uh, that we have a constant source of hope and an expectation of good because of what you've done through Jesus on the cross and through the empty tomb. And so God, this, right now as we, uh, as we contemplate, as we remember, as we take communion together, we just ask that Uh, You help us to understand the peace that you sought to give us in this life through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.